Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. On today's episode, we'll dive into the story of John's life in Hell's Kitchen and how the consequences of his actions affected those closest to him. You'll hear the voices of his childhood friend, Kenny Gonzalez, and his mother, Laura O'Connell. Have you found writing to be a cathartic form for you to be able to come to terms and think about your crime and uh, how you ended up in there? Yes, I have. I mean, you know, in 2001... Almost 19 years ago, December, I killed a man. I was deep in the lifestyle of selling drugs. I was about 24 years old. And, and as sick as it sounds, I had accepted murder as part of the life I was living. I mean, I expected I would kill someone one day, as sick as that sounds. I grew up in neighborhoods that, I guess, organized crime and all that kind of stuff was kind of romanticized. And murder and crime and that sort of lifestyle had a particular mystique to me. Uh, and I unpacked this in my writing. So when I came to prison, I had like a ninth grade education. I was a pretty much a loser. I mean, it was, I had screwed up. I, you know, I come from a, grew up in a, in, a, in a housing project in Brooklyn. And then we sort of moved to Manhattan when I was an adolescent. Again, it was like this, this neighborhood that was intoxicating because it had like the Westies in the backdrop. And this, that Westies were like an Irish organized crime gang that were from a past generation. You hear about all that stuff. All your friends' fathers are involved with our sons of these, these gangsters that are either dead or in federal prison. And you know, I got very caught up with that sort of speak of that all. And eventually started getting involved with criminality and I eventually wound up, you know, killing a man. And uh yeah, in prison, you know, you you could easily perpetuate that. You know, you could sit in the yard and just talk about Knock around guy, shit, yeah, this guy's no good, this guy's a rat, this guy's good, uh, he just had this guy from another joint, <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy, you know, he puts in plenty of work and uh, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you could get caught up with that for, for decades, and this, I call it like an upside-down kingdom way of thinking, where violence and all that kind of shit, how many guys you stabbed, how many, you know, how tough you are, there are like notches on your belt, and it's kind of like a resume, or you could sort of you know, take advantage of an opportunity, which I did when I was in Attica. It was like this uh, creative writing workshop. And it was like Attica's best kept secret besides the AA group where I got sober. And, and, and in that workshop, uh, there was a guy who, he was a English professor and he's a very good writer and he was an Iowa Writers Workshop graduate. And he taught us how to, how to write. And uh, I was only a handful of us. And I took the skills that he sort of was helping us with uh, in that workshop and I ran with it. And I took to journalism, and I've sort of grown out of that mindset with also sobriety at the same time. I learned to write, saw that hard work that went into publishing, and eventually I started to just aspire and want different things for myself. You know, when you get caught up with those knock-around guy conversations, I mean, they just, they, they, they just didn't, they didn't resonate with me anymore. When I, when I started, like, having relationships with colleagues and people that, like, had, like, 
Pulitzer Prizes, writers and journalists. And I was just, I was impressed with them. Like, I wanted to be like them. I mean, it's like anything. You know, you grow up and you have opportunities and experiences and, you know, life takes a different path. When I found journalism, I experienced empathy more than I ever had before. It's only through journalism that I kind of like have these like in-depth interviews, particularly with feature writing. When I really started becoming a feature writer, you really have to immerse yourself in, in character. And the characters are the people around me. I was writing about them. But also writing had helped me come to terms with my own crime. At first, I, I thought about my crime in this pretty apathetic, myopic-minded sort of way. Like I just mentioned, like I killed a gangster, I thought, and he was in the life, and I was in the life, and that's how it is in the life. But in writing these personal essays, too, I found myself wanting to be understood, like wanting, uh, I guess, like my reckoning to be acknowledged. I wanted to be seen as the writer, not the murderer. I, I guess I couldn't get that recognition if I wasn't fully realizing the hurt that I had caused, you know? And you can't really, like, there's not, like, a lot, a lot of therapy to sort of sort that out. Because, I mean, writing and writing with really, really smart editors, I was very fortunate to sort of be landing pieces and, and top-shelf publications where my editors would push me. Like, I remember I was writing this piece for the New York Review of Books. I mean, the New York Review of Books is like this highbrow place. It's like, it's it. It's like the New Yorker. You take the sort of cathartic moments of growing as a human being where you could get them when you're in my situation, I suppose. And if I was getting them from trying to sort out this piece that I was writing, this 7,000-word feature in the New York Review of Books with a really smart editor, or whether if it was an apolo the apology letter feature I was writing in the, in the Washington Post magazine with another really smart editor, and she's pushing me, you know, to go deeper. And it's like, you just, I want more from you, John, and you have more in you. And, you know, so, I mean, you, you kind of take it where you can get it. And so there is a cathartic experience to answer your question that I got through writing and publishing. I think there's a conflict in it, too, because it's like you're getting this sort of fame from publishing. But those particular pieces that I'm actually writing about, I didn't take a fee for those pieces. Whereas the, you know, the pieces that I wrote about others, they're more journalistic, that weren't sort of like getting too much into the murder or at all into the murder. I took those the fees for that. So there is a level of ethics, too, that you have to sort of find your way with that. There's not, there's nobody's like look, sort of looking over your shoulder saying, there is the Son of Sam law, but you have to sort of follow that law, right? And I'm still in the process of, you know, trying to make restitution. And that money is put aside and all that other kind of stuff. I'm sure it's valid sort of questions when somebody like me is earning an income from storytelling. Imagine it's the 1960s and you're 18, already married and pregnant and living in a cookie-cutter house on Long Island. Your husband is this Italian guy, 10 years your senior, who makes you cook and clean and have babies. When you don't do as you're told, he slaps you around. You give him two sons and a daughter, first Joseph, then Eugene, then Michelle. You eventually file for a divorce and leave him and the kids. It's the only way out. You look like a young Susan Sarandon, even after having three children, and the men can't stay away. In the mid-70s, you marry a smooth Manhattan bartender, an Irishman who hides his alcoholism. He woos you with his brogue, gets you pregnant, then leaves you with a big, fat baby boy, John. Now you're on your own. It's single motherhood, public assistance, long lines, lots of applications. It's raising John and a Brooklyn housing project. With cash, 
you save from running hot dogs fans, you get him away from the projects, sending him to private boarding schools, you get financial aid, Jewish summer camp, you say he's Jewish to get a discount, and therapy, after the news comes that his father blew his head off, yeah, the Irishman who ditched you. In the late 80s, you move from the projects to a rent-stabilized apartment in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. It's your third husband, George's place. He's another Irishman, a longshoreman. With George's connections through cronyism and nepotism, you get work in the Broadway theaters. You love the chic city crowd, your gay friends with whom you go on summer trips to Fire Island. But it's the pivotal adolescent stage for John, and he gets a taste of the gangster culture stewing in the kitchen. Fast forward to the late 90s. Your kids are all grown up, and you're wheeling and dealing as the broker of a small but successful real estate business. You know how to stroke your competition, the male brokers with big egos. You try to groom John for the business, send him to real estate classes, urge him to go to meetings in church basements so he can get sober and humble and learn how to act right. He doesn't listen. And in 2001, when he's accused of machine gunning a man to death on a Brooklyn street, you think he probably did it. You hate him for it. And for the disgusting criminal lifestyle, you know he's been living. You still love him, though. Unconditionally, right? So you hire a lawyer, a good one. But what's the end game here? To help him beat the murder rap? He may get out and kill again, or get killed himself. You don't want to wind up like the mother of Alex, the boy your son killed. Alex had been tried for murder in the same Brooklyn court where John would be tried. Alex wound up getting acquitted. A few years later, John wound up killing Alex. Now it's 2004. It's John's second trial for Alex's murder. The first ended in a hung jury. Your son, the lawyer you hired, the district attorney, they're all egomaniacs. For them, it's all about winning. You look across the aisle at Alex's mother and realize that, for the both of you, it's all about losing. The prosecution presents pictures of Alex's bullet-ridden body, testimony about the killing, blown-up photos of Alex in his younger, more vulnerable years, while Alex's mother sobs in the gallery. During a recess, you lock eyes with her in the hallway, and your heart melts and races, and you're scared, and you don't know what to do. But you realize what you should do. You embrace her and say, I'm sorry. You cry. She cries. Your son is convicted. I haven't seen my mother in years. She's got Parkinson's disease. A part of me has uh, accepted that I may never see my mom again, and I want to talk to her on the show so her voice and our conversation can live in the clouds, and I could pull her down from the clouds, I guess, for the rest of my life. I think about, like, that, you know, that horrible situation I put you in, having to, like... No, it's all right, Sean. I go about it, too. Life is what you make out of it. You've given so many balls to play with in that split circle of life. And you came out with some, you used a lot of heavy ones, but you got some balls left. And and my, I used all mine up this month. But you have something left. But we're, we're, we're very late boomers, but we're intense. Oh, well, thank you, Mom. Well, you were always a hustler, but you were, some would say, you're a late bloomer in business. I mean, you, you, you really got 
got some momentum with real estate, like in your 40s, right? No, I was 49, I think, close to that. 48, I look at my first license. Yeah, and you were, what, working for Tracy? You were, so you were working as an agent, and uh, you were working for Tracy, uh, getting listings and selling houses, right? Hustling. Exactly. And it was, it was like playing games. I loved it. I loved it. I got such a such a gush from it. And, and I know you were looking for that nice feeling, too. You missed that. You missed that. So you got a lot of nerves. So you opened up a business like a block away from the broker you used to work for. You bought the building and, and opened up your own real estate. I mean, that takes a lot of nerve. Right? <laughs> you think so? I thought it about it, but it didn't stop me. So when you were going to buy that building, you said, I'm not going to work for Tracy anymore. I'm going to go buy right. that building. How many, how many people were telling you, uh, yeah, that's a great idea, Laura. Like, you can do it. Like, Some good what was, told me, were you crazy? Yeah. I, I loved it. I, I, it didn't matter. You know, Joey was fixing up that store, and, and we haven't even finished decorating, you know, um, renovating it. And people were knocking on the outside door begging me to take them out. They had they take them out looking for houses. Yeah, they, they met me and Tracy, which but then I accumulated my own. It's like you, it's your business. Mm-hmm. It's marketing. I think it would be called marketing. Marketing. So you got listings and you sold houses. And, yeah. And you did well. And you tried to lure me into uh, the business too, but, uh, uh, you know. That's the ground floor. No, you did. Was, you remember that when you gave me a shot? Uh, I wanted you to have that big family in, in Greenpoint and uh, run it. But I, I said, no, this is not going to work. This is a big drug haven. Right. Oh, yeah, that right. deal. Yeah. That was a beautiful place for you to have. That would have been your legacy. But you have your own legacy. I went a different route. We'll say that. You did. Yeah. Well, but, but you know what? It's good. In a way, I don't want to sound crazy, but you you did good. You did good. You took the time and put it to good use, and you went into a very deep part of your body. People die when they get down there. Yeah. I mean, perhaps it all worked out. As it should have, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, yes. uh, I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I were acquitted. Like, oh, you know. I'm so glad you're there. Look what you accomplished in that time. That I always wanted to lock you up, but I would have treated you good. <laughs> oh, thanks. I would have locked you up and put you in fine school. But you went to a fine school. Fine school, hard knock. And this essay I mentioned, how you used to be, I go on to talk about sort of our you know, journey together. and. Uh, and losing um, Eugene and uh, how tough that was. I mean, I have uh, my brother. I mentioned him briefly. And then, uh, you know, there's a parallel between you and the mother of Alex. You know, I make that parallel in the story, but, but you've dealt with loss. A lot of loss, strong. You, 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 you were handled quite a bit as a baby, but thank God you were strong and smart. Just to go back to the me trying to get away with murder and you sort of, you know, hiring that, I mean, he was yeah, one of the best go. murder trial attorneys in Brooklyn at the time. I didn't think so. He's like, he <laughs> well, he was. But, I mean, that must have been very hard for you because on the one hand, I mean, you lose both ways. I mean, here you get, you, you raised me, you, you wanted the best of me, and now you're in a position where... Uh, I'm I mean, trying to hang on. What was the end game? For? There was, there's no, there was just, there was an investment with absolutely no good outcome. You're the investment for me. Well, from where we've been now, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm in prison. Uh, but, I'm I mean, at the time, though, it must have been so hard for you. It was, Sean. And, and I, after I broke loose of that, that cycle, I was out in the 80s doing disco with Marianne. 
and just really carrying on. You saw a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, you were wild. So more, more than I wanted you to see. But my intentions are always good. Do you remember the Pink Hotel in Oahu? And Honolulu, yes. With the, and Honolulu with the big strawberries? Yeah, the chocolate-covered strawberries, I remember. In, I remember I was, uh, re- yeah, yeah, tell the story when uh, I was yelling for mom, mom, <laughs> you want to tell us? Oh, there's so many stories in Hawaii, we were funny. You took me there, we went on vacation, I think. You're hanging out with another guy on the side uh, for my stepfather, and we flew out to, uh, and he, we flew out with <laughs> your sister. You can write a book on this one, John. Do you remember having like empathy for you know Alex? Of course, I remember. I'm alive. I have a pulse. I mean, that must have been a tough position for you to be in. Like, I was so selfish. That's what I meant by saying we're all egos. The district attorney, yeah. my, my, Instead my. I think about who you're going to hurt when you do something. All of the ass people. But you've done that. I know you went there and found another way of life, and you was really not right. You know, and, they, and you got fixed. You fixed it. You allowed yourself to get fixed. And I don't know what you did, but you did it. And I just can't stop thinking about it. But, but when I went away, you must have thought, like, what a waste, though. I mean, I mean, who could have forced? When you went to that? prison. Yeah. When you went away, when you went away to the other camps and and the other stuff, schools. I was like, I could go. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so I go to school. And that's every every mother's dream when they when a child goes to school. But prison, that must have really, uh, I mean, that must have broke your heart because it's kind of hard to foresee me sort of making a life for myself, right? I saw it, but I didn't see you making your life for yourself. I saw you going to prison, clearly. But then when and I went to prison, it was kind of hard to see me making a life for myself. I mean, it must have been... I couldn't believe that. Right. I, I, you, you blew me away, John. You, you, you're, you're very competitive. You're, you, you know, you're, you're because he says that your life still to live. I can't get the numbers right, but you've got a big part of your life. You know, when I opened up my real estate, when I went into the business myself, I was 50 wow. years old. 50 years old, that's right. 50. That makes me feel good, because that'll, that'll be, you know, around the age I get out, which, is, which isn't too far. Everything before 50 was a waste. I didn't, except having you and John and Joey, Michelle. That was, but everything else I did was stupid. And, and I, and, and, but the last part I did was having you and, and the kids and, 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 and taking care of myself and, and, and you guys did good, especially under the circumstances. You just went the long way around. And I was devastated, but what could I do? I had a brother that went to prison. Yeah. Five years. Right around when you got pregnant with me, my father, uh, Sean, he got sober, right? Not for long, but he... When I was born, he, he relapsed, right? That's like a... Yes, on his, in- your birth. I wow. did, he swore, he was sober. We had a nice time with the key, we went to the, the, uh, Long Island, what's that place out there? Oh, the Hamptons, maybe. The Hamptons, right. I think that's... You're saying he, he got stayed. sober in the Hamptons, or he had, he had a place out there, and, and you guys stayed out there? Yeah, we had a on vacation. Mm. And we also went out to Fire Island, which you which, 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 memories, I can't... You like Fire Island? Well, you introduced me to Fire Island. I introduced you to everything. You did. <laughs> you, who did you introduce yourself to? Very important. I never knew why. I was asked a question, but but was the most I think quite significant thing that like I became aware of since you had been been in prison, something like that. And I have to just say to to realize that you have a life and how you live with it is definitely up to you. And and and, but you didn't you you didn't go off the railing. You know you're still gonna get out. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, what I'm most proud of 
is that I'm able to give you some semblance of of being proud. I mean, that's kind of a I am proud. Weird, well, I appreciate. I am it. proud. You made a big mistake. Hey, a lot of people out there say I was the, this privileged, like white kid from middle class family. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I don't know. What do you think? What did I say before that? I mean, we grew up in the grew up in the projects, and uh, you didn't grow up like 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 everybody else grew up. You grew around with a cooler hair. You you was a big shot. <laughs> oh, you're referring to the BMX bike you bought me. Yeah, the ET bike that flew the around. You had bike, that bike, right? I think you gave me a lot of opportunities that a lot of my peers in the housing projects did not have. I think you never had that before. Things. Kenny said you can be my mother anytime. Oh, you're referring to my friend Kenny from from Alice Kitchen. My childhood best friends, Kenny Gonzalez. You know, you and I uh, grew up in uh, a pretty seedy part of New York City, called in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, and so Hell's Kitchen is kind of uh, on the west side of uh, New York City. And we grew up in the early '90s when uh, New York City was still gritty, right, with peep shows, absolutely, and, and hand-to-hand drug deals, which is where you probably find us, like right? on 51st Street and 10th Avenue. Our whole crew there, and we were sort of like, you know, this sort of next generation from this very sort of. Uh, notorious sort of organized crime and we had that sort of living in the backdrop and you know I I remember like first time I met you we were just like hanging on the corner selling drugs on the west side of Manhattan and uh, we were just you know (laughs) we were just guys I remember we used to do pull-ups off the street lamp and uh, we used to just uh, just hang out a crew of us and it was all about nepotism right we all had jobs in the Broadway theaters and I remember the first time I heard about like the Westies was when my stepfather Georgie was uh, used to take me up to his hunting cabin, and I used to be asleep, but they didn't know that he used to be talking to my mother, mm-hmm. taking her up to the hunting cabin, and uh, she he would talk about you know and Georgie as you know used to be best friends with Bobby, Thank and they used you, yeah. to like you know they're hunting guys you know they're, they're, they 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 kind of stayed away from that they were they were really uh, they were good guys mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I used to hear him like, but I still used to hear him talk about like the Westies. And I remember like it was, I was like 11 years old. And I remember my father had died. He had just blown his head off. And it was like this like void. I didn't realize it then, but it, it kind of made an impression on me, you know? Like my father just killed himself. Like that left an impression. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize that until years later. But anyway, so we became, we become friends. And then I kind of bounced back to Brooklyn where I'm originally from. And then I start this sort of drug empire and I come back little mini empire and I come back and, and we're selling drugs and uh, this is like the late 90s now was it yeah it was I guess it was around 90 97 98 you're right so now I uh, so we're selling what coke and heroin I'm bringing like uh, mostly heroin back to the neighborhood which today is something that you know become this whole other thing you know which sort of ashamed of you're having this spot. It doesn't really turn out well. You know, we have a little run, and then you, you keep getting locked up. Yeah, no, I just I do remember you, uh, I mean, you, you coming, you going out to Brooklyn and, and, and doing this, the whole heroin thing and then coming in and, and, and inviting me into that particular market. And it wasn't a market I was uh, familiar with. Uh, my, my, uh, my market was cocaine, marijuana, 
you know, that's all I really, and just about everything else. But I just wasn't really in a heroin game. And you, when you when you came back, you had you were just really, really had this success. You had new cars and jewelry and, and and a lot of money and things were going good for you in Brooklyn. And you you were like, let's put it here. We can we can get it going here. And and at first. And I was like, nah. I mean, I don't really. I mean, I don't really know much about it. And I, and I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's let's give it a shot. And I just remember the first time. It, I mean, we 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 put it on the street, and it was. Uh, it didn't go as well as I thought. I don't know. I'm. I just didn't. I wasn't really feeling it. And then uh, I I kind of quit. And then next thing you know, I got all these dope fiends and heroin addicts coming up to me asking me for material that i no longer had and i had to call you back and say john you got to come back these people are it's like it was a it was a product that sold itself and i i didn't know that and uh all of a sudden i had these these addicts coming up to me like where is it at and i was like oh i stopped um but all right fuck it i'll try i'll get it i'll get more and then next thing you know it just took off in the neighborhood so you had it in in uh in brooklyn going well already and then i think it started i would say it started to go well in, in hell's kitchen as well would you agree yeah, I mean, uh, it took off. It depends on, you know, the sort of, you know, material you get. And, you know, it's, and I think it's, it's one thing to, uh, to sort of, like, I remember just, you know, kind of injecting myself back into the guy I used to be and, like, this identity as a drug dealer. And it's just, like, the more money you made and the more product you sold, the more your identity, you know, sort of bolstered. You know, talking about it today, you know, having sort of changed the way, you know, I, you know, think and feel, obviously, it's kind of a, you know, and, and then having my brother overdose, you know, Eugene, whom, whom you know, and, uh, you know, it, you, you, you have a personal experience with it, which most of America has today, which is not this romanticized vision of, you know, how much heroin do I sell? And I'm a big shot. And it's, not, it's, not, it's not about this status thing. It becomes more about this, this unfortunate human thing. And, yeah, uh, absolutely, John. We jumped in with both feet with no regard for the extent of damage that we were doing to to society. I mean, it was looking back now, I, I mean, I it was horrible. We 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 killed, we were we we were poisoning people that we loved. People we thought were friends of ours. You know, we were hurting a lot of people and it was it was far reaching that the the consequences and the damage were far reaching a lot further than we could see with our own eyes and uh Remember when Eugene got? Uh, I remember. I remember when Eugene like he got like he started doing dope. I remember the first time he asked, I was like, "You doing dope now?" Like, you know, and and uh, and I found out one of my sellers was, had sold him something like behind my back, and I confronted my seller like real. Regret. I was like, I was like, "You sold my brother dope." He was like, "John, you fucking brought heroin to this whole neighborhood." Like, yeah. Like you're a dope man. Like, I, like, like. Of course, well, your brother can't even want to dope. I'm not gonna say no. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm on dope. Everyone's on dope. Like, and I was like, I, you know, you know, looking back now, it's like, you know, it's something. You know, having, you know, you, you sort of think about your identity. Mama, you were you you tried your best with me, and and you did send me uh, to to some great schools when I was younger, and. Part of that is why I feel ashamed, uh, even though we, you know, I, I don't think we grew up privileged in the, in the sense that people would think privileged, but I think that you tried, you know, your best for me, and, you know, I want to acknowledge that, that, uh, you know, I, I screwed up, you know. They have, everybody has a broken family, John. Look at the Kennedys. There's a whole bunch of them, and they, and they rolled around that Hyannis port in the summertime with playing ball, beating each other up, rolling, rolling, running around in the dirt. 
I mean, they were funny. They had nannies, but they were wild, those Kennedys. And I wanted to have a big family. I loved it. My, my family broke up. You, I don't, stop wandering around. Because you're, you're, you're searching your soul very deeply, and that's why you're such a great writer, I think. Well, thank you. But you just put it, you didn't even go to school, high school. Well, I came to prison with a ninth grade education. That's correct, yeah. But you always sent me subscriptions to the New York Times and all these different And you read them? You magazines. just don't want yeah, and it helped me learn to be a writer. I mean, without you, without your help. You could have been easily a guy playing in the yard, lifting weights and doing all that crap and not studying, not challenging I was. Brain. I mean, I was. I think everyone has their sort of, uh, their journey, you know. I got, you know, I got an opportunity to, uh, you know, to learn to write in a workshop. And I got lucky. You got lucky. That's how but, I feel. But you helped me along the way. You know, you always. You I always did. Of course to, I did. And then, but you know, it's kind of tough. It was tough to, to. I mean, you know, I have to acknowledge, like you, you I remember. Uh, I mean, we a couple of years. It was, uh, you know, send money to this place and that place, and you know, I was doing drugs, and uh, you know how it is in here. I know it's not easy going against the grain. You, you did great, John, and I was, I, I would forgive myself and let it go because there's nothing you could do to change it, and and it was such a moment, just a, such a fraction of a second. Anything could have changed right then and there, but it happened, and and so be it. But God still left you with some beautiful life, and that's, I'm proud of it before you even got out. I never expected you to ever get better. I think that's the point, right? I mean, we have these expectations we have of people in, in prison. I mean, understandably, it's uh, it's a tough place to get well in. You did, and and, and you uh, get tough like me. One of those attorneys, what's his name, used the word tenacity. He referred to you as a lot of sometimes a lot of tenacity. So you have that too, and I think I get that from you. And uh, I mean, that's what you had tenacity too. Getting those listing, getting those uh, listings, you had a lot of uh, nerve. And uh, I, <laughs> I think I think we both. I think I get that from you, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, I just wanted to let you know that uh, I think you're. You know, I, I just you know, as I, I love you and. Uh, and I just thank you for, you know, like, uh, never, you know, giving up on me. And, uh, you know, I think you, you, you were loving me when uh, I wasn't too popular. I mean, nobody. <laughs> I was too blue. And, uh, and then you made my amends for me, too. Like, you know, and a part of me, whether if it was a look or a, a quick embrace, I think it was a mother looking at another mother who lost her son. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for that, too, because uh, I think you spoke for me in that moment. You know, I... I'm not proud of what I did. It was, you know, I really, for a while, I rationalized it a lot. And, uh, you know, at that moment, you know, it was just two mothers. Sometimes that's what, uh, it was It was a really intimate moment that you told me about, that you shared with her. And maybe that was just between you guys, you know, but. Uh, it's know. terrible, you know. She didn't have no party. Nobody had a party. When they go into that criminal court, they all drop dead. Everybody There's no winners. There's no winners, I know. Yeah, it's all bad. There should never be a war that we have to lose. We have to make blood for our peace, for freedom, and all that. It shouldn't be. I, I wouldn't. I, you could have went 18 years in the military and been gone. Right where you are. Yep, that's one way to look at it. And I, I just wanted to hear your voice and get you on the show, and uh, just so I could, in many ways, I just want to be able to pull it down and hear us interacting. Um, I know it's different all the time, though. It is different all the time, but maybe we'll have. You know, well, you come on again. That's the cool thing. It's my show. I can. I can you love it. I love it too. I can't wait to hear it. Whatever. Thank you, Mama, and I love you. And uh, thank you. We'll talk soon. 
Okay, you have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye, Mama. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Faquette, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at JohnJLennon1 and check out his work at JohnJLennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The caller has hung up.